uh, I want to acknowledge, since uh, I'll get lost in what I'm talking about, um, the collaborators for these two other papers. Um, the paper that I guess this talk will most center on is uh, a collaboration with Alex Cholduchova, who's a fantastic colleague at um, Heinz School of Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, my most recent work in this area, which is just posted, is about uh, uh, algorithmic fairness from a, a non-ideal perspective and making a connection between political philosophy literature and sort of a lot of the things that I think are going wrong in the fair ML literature. And this is work with my postdoc, uh, Sina Fazalpour, who uh, I'll shamelessly advertise is uh, you know, a potential job candidate and I think is an absolutely wonderful collaborator and I think you know, anyone with a position to hire him should. And uh, I think he's one of the, a true interdisciplinary scholar in this area. Um, so here, here's the, the kind of, you know, if, if we review the, uh, here's, here's the, 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 like a million miles out zoomed out pattern that I think we keep seeing over and over again is what people do is they take a problem that's not really a prediction problem and they fashion it as a prediction problem anyway. So they come up with a surrogate. They say, what is something that, you know, I'm trying to make some kind of decision. What is something that I have a label for that in some way has the same shape as the kind of action I'm trying to take? Um, what is some available covariates that I have for trying to predict that thing? What is some statistical um, measure of success? Say, uh, you know, something like accuracy. Um, this is all assuming that we have a prediction task, even that assuming that we have a well-defined probability distribution. Right? Accuracy, I think a lot of times in this conversation people come up and say, well, if your model is super accurate, why do you care about interpretability? Why do you care about fairness? Why do you care about whatever? You know, and the problem is that accuracy is, it's not even clear what accuracy means a lot of times. Accuracy, it's a wrong problem, and accuracy itself is, a, it's an expectation. It's, it's the expectation of, you know, indicator function of your prediction equals the, uh, the true label. An expectation is only well-defined with respect to a specific probability distribution. And a lot of times we don't really know what data generating process we're talking about. Then, right, some trouble arises due to the fact that, um, you know, we basically haven't posed the problem correctly. And, and it's not just an insufficiency in the sense of like the, um, the sort of insufficiency that machine learners are used to dealing with. As machine learning scientists, you're used to dealing with the insufficiency of your uh, predictive performance is lower than uh, you have reason to believe it could be. So I, I want higher accuracy. Here, I think we have insufficiency of a different kind. I think this, the sort of kind that um, statisticians are a little bit better at thinking about, and I think people who think really deeply about the science or philosophy of causality are, are, are crystal clear about thinking about, which is um, insufficiency of language. Like you, you fundamentally don't have the right technical language for describing a problem. And um, so in this case, right, there's no way, you know, people have tried for a long time to describe causal effects purely um, in like naive ways of uh, uh, statistical quantities, and they're not. They're, they're, there's a, a, a richness missing from the language. You need actually a notion of the counterfactual, whether you define that in terms of potential outcomes or uh, the due operator. Um, in this case, I think, you know, I think there are some deep connections to causality. I don't want to overemphasize causality, but I, I think there's a similar kind of like um, pattern of, of, of the, the actual language in which we're trying to cast the problems is insufficiently rich to describe it. And what happens then is we have a, a set of people with, with a toolkit that they use to create a product. The insufficiency of that toolkit gives rise to a problem, and they say, well, let's use the toolkit and try to fix it. So, so what are the tools of fixing things? Uh, adversaries. Uh, regularizers, um, the kind of um, standard, you know, handful of things that uh, sort of uh, naive machine learning practitioner knows how to do. Um, and, and another thing I'm going to, you know, since I, I guess we've got, we've got two hours, I can really ramble, um, that I point out is, you know, another kind of, pro uh, I think a fundamental issue here is that the people who are building these tools are generally machine learning scientists. One thing that machine learning scientists are really good at is getting results of predictive performance. One thing that we spend almost no time thinking about is identification, right? And this is something that people who are experts in causality are really good at. It's a question of, do you even have the right information to answer the question you're asking? Um, because if you're always asking the question, what is the best among you know, the hypotheses in my hypothesis class, that's a question that always has an answer, and it's an answer that's 
estimable from, you know, because you, you've taken as given the, observ the observable data, you've taken as given the hypothesis, cause say, how can, can I find the best one? Um, causal effects, you know, they might not be identifiable. If you just show me, um, you know, uh, observed data of X and Y, I can't, no one can say just by looking at the joint distribution over X and Y, whether X causes Y or Y causes X. The problem is fundamentally underspecified, right? And so um, this is something I think no one in the ML fairness community is I think adequately addressing is stepping back and saying, do we actually even have the right ingredients in a lot of these cases to make, um, you know, to, to have the sort of normative guidance that we need to be able to make the relevant kind of like moral determinations. Um, so, right, so we have this mistake of like trying to solve the problem, but the solutions are, are, are fundamentally flawed in precisely the same way that the initial products were fundamentally flawed. And then what we do um, is we mislead the public and tell them we've solved it. So we've got, you know, you write a paper and you say, this algorithm is fair. And the reviewers don't see it usually as their job to address like this kind of claim. They'll say, well, let's, let's look at the, does, does it look technically sensible? Do I like the graphs? But we, we sort of have a, a sort of slippage of the, the review system is not stopping people from making these kinds of claims that basically, in general, this is, this is the cancer of the AI community, right? Because we've done this since the beginning of time. We do it with lots of things. We do it with intelligence. We do it with consciousness. We do it um, with the word understanding, with comprehension. Um, there's a great paper from the 1970s, maybe. I, don't know. I wrote a paper called Troubling Trends in Machine Learning Scholarship a couple of years ago with a statistician at Berkeley, Jacob Steinhardt. And at some point, we, we were detailing a number of sort of problematic patterns we see in papers. And we, we reached out to, to people to get some, you know, we realized we were maybe committing career suicide by writing this paper, especially because we were very sighty. And, and and one of the pieces of feedback we got from people was, well, is this really unique to machine learning? And is this really unique to now? And, and this, you know, we spent a few weeks going and digging through um, sort of, and, and this is a recurring cycle, even within machine learning. And in the, and then there's, there's a paper from, the, I think, the late, late 70s or early 80s in the expert systems days, like, the, like around, the, you know, maybe just before or around time of the first AI winter. I think it's called Artificial Intelligence Meets Natural Stupidity. And even back then, they're saying, hey, if, if we ever solve the language understanding, what are we going to call it? Because that, that name's already taken. Um, same thing with, you know, by, by something that's not understanding. And same thing with, I think, um, uh, a lot of things, like even basic kind of, um, like kind of logical reasoning, uh, things like the word deduction was overloaded to mean something that wasn't deduction. So, you know, this is a pattern that we have. But I think the danger here now is we're actually building real products that people were using and we sort of are putting these academic certificates of like we've solved it, like we have a model and it is interpretable and there's a whole system of incentives to sort of say, hey, no, we are working on this problem, we've got tools. Um, and you know, to give you a sense of what's gone wrong, is like you see this, um, can I say the word shit or no? I'll say stuff all the time, but like, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I got, I don't even remember who this is from, but this is, uh, you know, from some company uh, using machine learning for hiring, and they, they assess we have bias-free algorithms. Um, I don't remember if this is the one, um, this might be the one, um, at least one of them is there's a company called Pymetrics out there, and Pymetrics, basically what they do is they said, oh, I saw this four-fifths rule somewhere. Let's just test whether or not we're complying with the four-fifths rule. Now, I think it's very easy to design a, a real-world scenario in which aiming for something like the four-fifths rule is um, progressive. I think it's very easy to design a world in which it might be like the, something most people would think of as the very most racist thing you could do in a given situation. But they just say, hey, we comply with the four-fifths rule. It's, this is bias-free. Like, you know, academic scholars and top, you know, MIT and all over the world are um, said this is the definition of fairness. Um, or here's an example of, I think, dangerous solutionism is, you know, on Twitter, uh, someone at a, at a large prominent tech company, um, who I shall not name, but the company rhymes with frugal, is <laughs> what was sort of called out on Twitter on account of uh, you know, some of the impacts of some of the services, the data-driven services. He says, hey, look, um, you, know, you think we're not dealing with this, but the field's more sophisticated. Like, there's many excellent papers on bias. Like, this is a problem. Like, like, it's like, sort of like, hey, we've got this. You know, we've got a team working on fairness. 
and, and the real danger is that, you know, and what I'm going to get to, you know, ultimately is that I think that the real danger is that what we could do is just sort of preserve the status quo, do uh, deploy products that are absolutely flawed in the same way as the ones we're concerned about, um, that sort of function in qualitatively like the same exact way, but to call them fair and to create sort of a like shield against uh, the sort of more thoughtful regulation that's actually um, sort of called for here. So um, I know we've got an interdisciplinary audience. I apologize if this seems you know, a bit uh, ABCs, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of just like, let's look at what actually is happening in machine learning at the, the most basic level, and then kind of put it, you know, um, maybe juxtaposed against what I think is actually demanded by, by these settings that we're entering. And you know, I think it'll become clear what some of the problems are. So basically, we have one hammer. You know, I think if you go to a machine learning conference, you'll believe we've got four or five hammers. But um, if you work in industry, you know that we have one, right? And, and that is supervised learning. It is the only thing that we know how to use to turn data into products, right? At least in, for, in terms of uh, like data-driven like automation. And, and, and the setup is really simple, right? Um, we, we feed some data into uh, a function called uh, in ML algorithm, a supervised learning algorithm, uh, it ingests a data set, a collection of inputs, and something that we've decided to call the output. Um, as as the, these collectively, the data set of the inputs of the machine learning algorithm, and its output is a function that we call the model. And the model, we hope, if it's learned to generalize, which is no trivial feat, and it's something that you know, um, and we still don't even know why neural networks generalize. Um, um, it, it, the output of this is, uh, is a model that, you know, if things have gone well, we hope uh, shown uh, a, a new input from the same distribution. Um, this model will sort of, in expectation, uh, have low error at predicting what is the corresponding target. And so, you know, we, we come up with things. We say, oh, we've got a, a big number of examples. If this is a sentence in English, this is a corresponding sentence in French. Um, we'll put all these sentences together. So, so these could be really complicated objects, but at the end of the day, that's sort of all it is. Um, we've got neural networks, which are just one way of expressing a family of models. That's all it is. They're loosely neurally inspired. Um, you know, this is really a name that owes more to legacy than any kind of biological plausibility, because they were really invented by McCulloch and Piss, who are psychologists, um, and actually were interested in cognitive science. And uh, recently, people have gotten excited about deep learning, but the fact that it's deep really has no bearing on the conversation here. You know, I think this is a, a big distraction, and I think uh, the entire interpretability discourse has gone, I think, uh, has really misled people into thinking that the important issue is whether the model has two layers or 10 layers or 20 layers. The problem is that we're expressing everything as a statistical prediction problem. And uh, that problem doesn't go away if you're training linear models. And you know, the fact that we're doing deep learning really has no bearing on the conversation, I don't think. That's my opinion, though. But I'm speaking, so I guess I got to say that out loud. Um, so right, on, you know, all we're doing in building this product is curve fitting. Um, this is a, a point that I, I, I think, for anyone who doesn't have a background in causality, um, I, I really recommend reading this book. Um, this is, these are some quotes from Yuta Pearl when he was on his uh, sort of like victory lap, you know, press tour, uh, promoting the Book of Why. It's a bit snarky, and you know, he does, um, he does uh, certainly give a few sucker punches to his uh, long-held grudges and statistics. But it's also a very, very readable book, and um, I think I approached it at the time with uh, almost no background in causality, and, and found it, you know. Um, it makes a lot of, he, he does, he's, he's a great explainer. And I think the, um, and, and you know, basically his, his point is to say, hey, machine learning is stuck entirely on learning associations. And, not, and some things are just fundamentally not uh, associational quantities that we're interested in. Um, so treatment effects, for example, or you know, a classic example of this. Um, and, and there's sort of like two sides of this. Like, the one side, which I think you know, he concedes is, hey, we did not expect that so many problems could be solved by curve fitting. So I think the fact that um, you can get, uh, maybe we haven't really truly solved translation, and maybe we even can't fundamentally with a purely associational system, 
but we can get it to the point where it's useful enough to people that it facilitates like global commerce um, in a way that like otherwise wasn't possible. Um, it can't, you know, to the point that it actually does significantly erode a language barrier. Like we, we have these great results that people are really excited about, and yet at the same time, um, you know, while that's sometimes that's enough, it's just fundamentally, you know, often just not what we're interested in. So um, I kind of stole the title for this slide from a workshop that a really great workshop that Cynthia Dwork ran at the Simons Institute called Wrong at the Root. Um, but basically, you know, the problems we're addressing, the problem is that they're usually not just supervised learning problems, right? So almost all the time we're interested in automation. Automation concerns making decisions, concerns taking actions, and we're usually interested in the effects that those actions will bring about. Now, um, what we usually do is we just say, well, let's just train a machine learning system and uh, that somehow we think there's some kind of loose connection between the prediction problem and uh, the, the, the causal problem we're actually interested in. Let's just throw it in the wild and see what happens. That's what happens. That's the state of the art in industry. And this plagues every system, even ones where we just don't worry about it because we don't think there is some important moral consideration. So like recommending products, uh, say like large retailers, what do they do? They just predict what people, based on, say, all their purchases up until a month ago, would purchase in the succeeding month. Now, is that actually, like, how is that connected? Like, what you really want to do is show recommendations to people that either are going to uncover products that they, are, they want to buy, products they wouldn't have otherwise bought. You want to have some effect on their level of engagement, the amount of time they spend. So even from just a purely profit-seeking mode, you're solving the wrong problem. Um, but that's what we're doing, right? Is that we say, well, let's just predict what they would have bought, use that to populate the carousel, and then what you do is, where, where they at least get a little bit of a flavor of causality is not in designing the tool, but in uh, evaluating it. What no real business actually says, oh, you got a great AUC, let's deploy this for two billion customers. What they do is they say, let's run an A-B test, which is basically a randomized controlled trial. So let's try this sort of incoherent thing against the previous incoherent thing that we had, but at least we'll be a little bit coherent in at least the short-term effects of it by, by just kind of monitoring in the wild and see what happens vis-a-vis um, their like, inevitably like, kind of profit-oriented kind of metrics of interest, like how many people signed up for your site, how many people joined your loyalty program, um, how many purchases did people make. So, you know, um, what I'm you know, going to argue here is that the literatures on fail, fair algorithms and interpretability are kind of, I think if you look at what people say they're going to do, you look at a typical interpretability paper, they say, we're using this to make decisions about criminal justice, we're um, using this in medical situations, where how do we know if the model's robust, how do we know if the model is going to, you know, hold up if the data distribution changes, um, how do we, you know, extract causal effects and say, so let's make it interpretable or like let's add, you know, or, or if it's a fairness consideration, let's, let's make it fair. They never stop and ask is like, are these questions, questions that are addressable within a supervised learning framework? And, and I think they, they often aren't. And I think interpretability of the case is, is really clear. It's because they, they, you know, mainstream papers are, are purporting to tell you something about robustness. And that's, that's that, you know, this is a field that like actually um, is quite mature and, and has deep connections to causality because you basically say what makes what makes your future data similar to your past data? In what ways are these distributions linked? If they're not linked at all, if you make no assumptions about how those distributions are similar, then basically training robust models is fundamentally impossible. There's just there's no free lunch. Um, you have to assume something. Usually what you assume starts looking like causality in the sense that you assume there was some alteration to your data generating process that makes the future look different from the past, which is something that looks like an intervention. So, um, right, so we come up with these sort of hacks and we publish papers and there's a little bit of a market, I think often by well-intentioned people, of like the people want to consume these papers, they want to encourage work in this area, but the result is that people get away with absolute murder and publishing papers that truly make no sense. And the, the real danger is right, that we can give the appearance of a solution. So um, I want to go you know, even a little deeper and say that even if we, I don't think we're addressing prediction problems, but even if we were, um, there's already situations where you know, we would start to worry about bias in the context of, say, disparities among various groups. Um, um, even before we start thinking beyond the, you know, the, the umbrella of, of 
um, prediction. Um, for example, we might care if, for example, not in necessarily an allocative setting, but just in a setting where like we're providing some service. Um, if, uh, if, if some groups that are somehow statistically different from others are underrepresented in the population on which you're training a model, um, the benefits of automation would potentially be unequal. You'd be deploying an inferior product for some people versus for others. Um, there's a question of if you're using, um, you know, even if, even if prediction were the right thing to do, um, there's obvious problems to come, that come about if, if, you're, if your labels aren't really the, uh, an unbiased um, expression of, of, of whatever quantity they're supposed to capture. So for example, if you, if you just wanna, um, even if you thought the right thing to do is to predict uh, sort of who would perform well uh, just in an observational sense after being hired at some company based on historical data, if your data is say who got promoted, then what you're ultimately capturing to some extent is who does the existing uh, managerial staff or something prefer to promote, um, you're potentially encoding you know, whatever sort of you know, systematic, you know, uh, perhaps discriminatory preferences they might have. Um, right, again, there's um, the problem of, you know, even if we think the right task is a prediction problem, often what we end up doing is still um, optimizing for the wrong task altogether. So I work in medical data a lot. Um, this may be my like pet application that I spend most of my like, applied applied time in. And I could test here, like even if it's not clear that predicting what diagnosis a doctor would give is the right thing to do. But even if you believe that is the right thing to do, um, but that's not what we have data for. What we have data for is billing codes. But so if you take a look at how, how these like electronic health records are architected, it's all around billing, right? And you, have, you don't have often diagnoses, but diagnosis codes. But diagnosis codes are not diagnosis codes, they're billing codes. Yeah. And you have to bill anything that you do against the diagnosis code. So for example, um, like this, this creates weird situations, like if you need to get tested for a condition that you might have but don't necessarily have, you get the billing code associated with your account because you know, we don't know if you have MS, but in order to uh, run the lumbar puncture and to check for like oligoclonal banding, we need to fly, you know, we need to bill it against the billing code for MS. And then if you don't have it, maybe they do or don't remember to remove that from your, from your file. So anyway, right? And then we have all these complications that um, um, our data is messy. All of, you know, we often, don't know what many of our covariates mean. That's certainly the, the norm in machine learning. Statisticians or actual scientists are certainly much more concerned usually about what their data actually means. But we're usually, we, we operate in a kind of data agnostic way. We don't spend a lot of time ag ag agonizing over what real world quantity our sort of measured covariate, you know, variables are supposed to represent. Um, and so it's almost like even meaningless to talk about measurement error because we don't even know what we're measuring in the first place. But. So I want to set this against, and I'm not a legal scholar, so maybe someone here um, speaking at Center for Ethics would, would, would you, know, um, you know, correct me if I'm making uh, any mistakes, but I'll present, you know, sort of to my best effort, uh, understanding some context in um, just how the law deals with these things. And, and, I, and I'm going to bring up the law specifically because a lot of the fairness literature invokes sort of legal doctrines and sort of purports to mathematize them. And I just want to actually... Um, dig into them. So, so the sort of like bedrock piece of civil rights legislation in the United States that I think is constantly referred to in the context of work on fair machine learning is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, right? And um, so this is, I guess, a photo of uh, shortly after the ratification. Um, and, and in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 um, gave rise to sort of uh, two uh, legal doctrines that um, uh, arise in sort of the, the, the um, principles according to which we sort of uh, classify or recognize um, discrimination. The first is disparate treatment. And so what I want to just, like, do as we go through these is to call out sort of like areas in which there are some aspects of the law that we have absolutely no idea how to, it's, 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 not, it, it's clear that it's not a statistical quantity or certainly clear that we have no idea how to capture it. And, uh, just some expression of you know, uh, a joint distribution. So disparate treatment is concerned with intentional discrimination. And keep in mind, the law is not math. 
So the law is, does not say, here are some set of axioms that cover uh, every situation you will ever encounter, and this is some general set of principles. The law often is, is um, addressing various real-world problems. Um, so the, there's something like, there's laws prohibiting drugs that we know exist. There aren't laws prohibiting drugs that have not yet um, been a source of addiction because they haven't been a problem yet, so nobody's bothered to create a law. Um, in the case of dis disparate treatment, this is sort of, I think, addressing more bald discrimination. And um, this, you know, specifically, um, and, and this is a weird thing to me, is that, you know, we have so many papers saying that, oh, this is what disparate treatment is, and this is what disparate impact is. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, specifically, like, you know, Title VII and the Civil Rights Act, is, is quite short. This is, uh, this, is, this is maybe like uh, after lunch read. And the number of people that are writing papers, or this is like your life's work, is saying that you work in this area that have not read it, that don't actually know what they're claiming to mathematize, is, is, is absolutely just flummoxing. And I think we should just be, you know, I mean, this is, I think, part of like paper cancer, but I think we should take a hard look at ourselves. You know, anyone's doing this is like, you know, this, this is our life's work, supposedly, is doing this research and submitting these papers. And to have, you know, I, the bedrock of it is some definition of a quantity that stems from a, you know, like a three-page document you haven't read. It's absolutely just flabbergasting. Um, so this addresses, disparate treatment addresses intentional discrimination. This includes dis decisions that are explicitly based on, right, uh, oh, by the way, the Civil Rights Act also formalizes this notion of a protected group. Um, the protected groups that are addressed in the Civil Rights Act are, are those that, I guess, people in 1964 were willing to deem worthy of protection. So you see uh, race and gender and age and religion, but you do not see, for example, sexual orientation, even though that sort of factors into the application of the law in some jurisdictions. Um, so, right, this includes uh, decisions explicitly based on uh, protected characteristics, but the key aspect of disparate treatment is this word intentional. And I don't know if any of you know how to assess the intention of, uh, of, a, of a classifier or of a system based on a classifier whose behavior is determined by some underlying data collection and objective setting process, but, um, or even to determine whose intention is, is the one that sort of comes to play there. But it's, you know, this is, this is, this is what we do is we sort of take these definitions. We, what people do is they sort of ignore the word intention. Let's say, let's just ignore that. Let's just say decisions based explicitly on a protected characteristic and throw out this whole notion of intentionality because we don't want to worry about it. Um, it also includes intentional discrimination based on proxy variables, right? Um, so, um, now by contrast, disparate impact is a doctrine that is meant to address this problem where facially neutral practices might nevertheless have an unjustified adverse impact on members of protected class. So the word that I'd call out here that you know, we don't know how to mathematize that gets rounded off is uh, unjustified. What does it mean to be justified as a function of the joint distribution of some observable data instead of classifications? Um, I don't think uh, people even bother to think about it. I think it's a, let's rule this out. Um, and if you actually look at what's the process, the legal process, and obviously you know, this is a bit United States centric, um, but uh, you know, this, is, this is for whatever reason, the US, it's the US law to which a lot of this literature is anchored, or at least it's inspiration from that it's anchored. If you actually say what this disparate impact case um, um, consist of, it's a three-step process. It's a complicated doctrine. First, a plaintiff sort of demonstrates a statistical disparity. This is not the, the beginning and end of the process. This is, this is step one of showing like, um, hey, there's, we should look deeper. It, it's, it's sort of cause to launch an investigation. Step two is the defendant has to sort of address the specific disparity and show that these are, these are justified, that, that the disparity arises because, um, and, and, and this requires some normative judgments ultimately about what does justified mean. Um, there's, there's also, you know, I think packed into the word justification is some notion of causality that uh, if you talk about like uh, we're hiring people for some athletic uh, sports team, then you're gonna say, um, well, this is what it takes to, to win games in the sport. And we're hiring people based on things that are relevant, not in the sense that they have high mutual information, that they're correlated, that, that these, these are causally relevant things. You know, you can make a counterfactual statement. Were someone not to have this skill, they could not perform this job, something like that. And then the plaintiff has an opportunity to sort of contest this argument and, and propose an alternative practice. 
alternative practices, and this also has a flavor of causality to it too, right? Because an alternative practice seems to me like a counterfactual statement. It's saying here is a different policy that you could have deployed and an argument that were you to have deployed this alternative policy, um, you could have achieved sort of the same business end without giving rise to this disparity. Um, this is a very complicated thing, and which I think it's, you know, it's not mathematized in the language of like Pearl's causal inference or Rubin's causal inference. Um, and I don't even think we have tools that we could do that, you know, at the level that I think we need to deal with these things informally. But informally, qualitatively, the kinds of statements we're concerned with um, do have this causal flavor to them. So let's look at now, I think, like how people in fair supervised learning have tried to address things. And what they basically said is let's take the standard ML setup, but instead of just having features and targets, feed them into the machine learning algorithm and get out a learned model, let's now somehow incorporate the sensitive feature into the learning process. So, um, and say, so what should we try to achieve? Is say, let's make the groups equal. And the question is, equal in what way? You can drop an infinite number of different equations where you have some kind of assertion where on the, uh, a conditioned assertion, where on the left side of the equation you condition on group membership as in group one, and on the right side of the equation you condition group membership as group two. Um, and you could say, well, um, and so what people say often is say, let's just say that the, um, the prediction should, be should, uh, should, should not be, should be sort of like marginally, um, you know, conditionally independent of, um, sorry, should be independent uh, not conditioned on anything of, of, of the demographic membership. And so it's basically an equal fraction, like, you know, if, if some fraction of people uh, from group one are assigned to the positive class, presumably being assigned to one of the classes is better than the other, then also the same fraction of people in group two should be assigned, irrespective of any kind of consideration of like procedural fairness, any consideration of what's actually involved in making the decision. Um, one of the big dangers here that I'd point out as sort of a side note is one of the ways things go completely off the rails is nobody is, is that once you start speaking very abstractly about these problems, it's easy to get completely lost because you don't actually think about what actual decisions look like. And uh, one, one way this became apparent to me was when I was working on admissions. And I'm working on admissions, I say, wait a minute, who's the population? And the population, when you're making a decision, if you're just gonna say, hey, people are streaming through some classifier, I've got a data set, for a hiring decision, the population is people who applied. And so actually asserting you know, that in, you know, the outcome is independent of group status, I think people are, there's a sort of like implicit, I think, normative consideration that people proposing this think what they're achieving is something like the, the parity with respect to the demographics in the underlying population. That's not what you would get. I think what you'd get is the most anti-progressive policy you possibly could deploy if you demanded this because you'd undo any attempt at diversifying or kind of correcting for sort of like past wrongs in society. So, you know, um, you know once you sort of abstract away from reality, you can, you can look at some of these things and think intuitively, hey, this looks fair, but it might actually be like the, the, the very most sort of regressive thing you could imagine doing. Um, what we say is let's have uh, treatment parity, um, or what they call blindness, or but what people in the paper, unfortunately, people, what people do is they call this disparate impact, as though this just is dis disparate impact as defined in the law. It's not. But because it's the first step of that process, right, is to demonstrate, say, like, like it, it is the mathematization of something like the four-fifths rule, right? And so people um, just call that and say, okay, this is disparate impact. And they take blindness, meaning that the classifier just doesn't directly look at the demographic membership, and they call that this is disparate treatment, you know, or this is, or not having, looking at it would be not having disparate treatment. Problem here is that, well, all of your features are, co are correlated with each other, and, and this sort of made, you know, in, in the event that uh, you sort of can perfectly reconstruct a demographic membership from, you know, a sufficiently rich set of other covariates, You've basically done nothing by having blindness directly. And you say, you have a lot of people saying, well, um, let's solve it with GANs because it's 2018 and why think when you could just stick an adversary in it and uh, you know, do the GAN dance. So they say, okay, let's have an adversary and let's have the adversary try to not be able to tell the representations apart. But this basically is just saying, let's have, this is just a roundabout way of getting demographic parity, right? It's just saying, 
I'm going to make it so that I can't tell them apart. It basically says, well, if you can't tell them apart, then the same fraction necessarily are going to get uh, classified in each side if you're just applying the same classifier on top of them thereafter. And then you have a bunch of other people saying, you know, uh, a bunch of other sort of like um, confusion matrix jujitsu, where basically what people do is they look at the different um, entries and they say we should have equal false positive rates, we should have equal false negative rates, we should have equal false positive and false negative rates, we should, you know, so on and so forth. So what this kind of looks like, right, is we say um, blindness or, you know, um, treatment parity says ignore this guy, ignore, ignore the sensitive feature, basically produce a model that doesn't directly look at the sensitive feature. Impact parity as sort of defined in these papers says, okay, you can, maybe you could look at sensitive feature, maybe not, but the important thing is that basically you're going to take the outputs of your model and the true labels and the sensitive feature and you're going to like assess uh, some parity condition, whether it's equal false positive rates or equal um, you know, false negative rates or demographic parity. And basically the idea here is that you're going to use a sensitive feature during training to fit your model. You're going to try to fit a model that satisfies the parity condition, but perhaps at the end of the day you may or may not actually produce a model that, that relies on those features. So, you know, we have as a kind of weird situation where AI people are, are doing the AI thing, which is taking a bunch of words that they've heard um, and just assigning them to kind of reductive technical definitions that don't really square up against the underlying uh, sort of like societal issue that, that, that they're sort of purporting to address. Um, and and here's, here's, I want to show you how it can go like a sort of case study of how this can go catastrophically wrong. And it can not just go wrong, it could go wrong with people publishing papers for many, many years and a whole long line of work that makes, I would argue, no sense um, without people realizing it because they've backed out so far from, from a, a real problem. And so this is a set of, I started seeing um, a line of work in this area that I identified as um, disparate learning processes. And I think the... Um, first couple times we submitted this paper before it landed in NeurIPS 2018. Uh, I think we, we wound up with some peer reviewers who had written these papers that uh, do this thing and uh, they were not very fond of the term, but I think this is what they are. You know, this is, a, I think, a, a nice functional characterization of what they are. The, the disparity is in how you do uh, um, the learning, but you ultimately produce a model that hopefully satisfies some kind of parity condition after the fact. So, right, they, what they, and, and so there, there's a bunch of papers, basically what they say is, hey, you, you can't have disparate treatment because the law says you can't do it, um, but we don't know what disparate treatment really is, so what we're going to look at is, I mean, the law is really complicated, right? Disparate treatment doesn't just say you can't have intentional discrimination, and basically disparate treatment is by definition illegal. And so when the law, which it does sometimes, says that you can incorporate demographic information, say um, when promoting diversity is considered to be like, uh, like of national interest, it's by definition not disparate treatment. So like the definition here is not the classifier, the decision process is blind. The definition is the decision process is blind and, un and is not intentionally using this information except for in cases where it's permissible to use it. And what are those cases is, is of fundamental importance. And if you, if you remove that from the equation of like, what is the problem I'm addressing? Is this a problem where it is okay to explicitly intervene and say that we believe that promoting diversity is in the state interest? Um, you know, like, like you basically get this glaring disconnect between that and what's going on in ML where they just say, okay, blindness. Um, so disparate learning process, okay, we're not gonna have treatment disparity because we're just gonna, our classifier is gonna be blind. And we're not going to have outcome disparity because we're going to train our model incorporating a sensitive information at training time, group membership, to fit our parameters such that the resulting model, you know, assuming that our future data has the same distribution as our training data, such that our future data um, is, um, satisfies whatever parity condition. So keep in mind, we've backed out completely. Of, we, we, we have the wrong definitions. We're, we have no idea what problem we're actually addressing. We're describing it in very abstract terms. And we also are not in any way considering the, the wider scope, which is that the moment that you start deploying these systems, you are not facing the same data distribution, right? What you're doing, as soon as you deploy a system, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're participating in a system of incentives. 
And as soon as you deploy a, a, a new policy, people change their behavior, and the distribution of data is going to be completely different. So, right, problems here is, look, if all the groups were at the very moment, if you live, and this will kind of tie into the, our more recent work, um, making kind of some connections to political philosophy, it's like, you know, um, this is what this kind of, I guess, the teaser is that basically, like, there's this distinction between sort of like the ideal approach and the non-ideal approach to theorizing about um, sort of like justice and political philosophy. And basically, you know, maybe an argument against the ideal approach is basically says, let's just like imagine that we live in a perfect world and everyone's completely compliant and fix some things that would hold in that world and sort of try to have those things be true. And, and the sort of problem is that it doesn't really give you normative guidance for what to do in the real world that you actually live in. And, and I think like, an argument against the non-idealist would be that like, hey, um, the ideal approach is sort of um, a straw man. No one actually believes it so naively. And the answer is, well, some people do. And, and the people are, it, it's fair machine learning, I think, is where we actually have the most naive um, deployment of the, of, of the ideal approach of basically what you said is, hey, well, look, if every, if every group is, is already identical in every way, then all we need to do is be blind and everything will be identical about them because they're otherwise, you know, are characterized by identically distributed data. If you live in a world where for various reasons, historical reasons, people are characterized, you know, as by different distributions over whatever features we have for them, then you sort of wind up with the fact that like you can come up with a whole bunch of parodies that you want to hold and they're irreconcilable. Like you can't satisfy multiple among them simultaneously. And so you get a cottage industry of impossibility theorem uh, creation. And um, in ML, we're sort of, sort of myopic. And like in stats, people tend to like have a competition of who gets the oldest citation in their paper. And I think in ML, we often, you know, like I, I've even seen papers that like say like the LSTM from 2014. Um, so we don't, e we don't even sort of look back, you know, 20 years. Um, but actually this has happened many, many times and in economics and political philosophy and way predating um, the modern work on fair ML is that basically you propose a bunch of axioms and, and they're irreconcilable. And they're just irreconcilable because, hey, you have two different groups that are differently distributed and you have a single decision maker that has a single lever and there's nothing you could do with that single lever that's going to make every single parity condition hold simultaneously. You just don't have enough degrees of freedom. So, um, you know, basically what we find is we analyze these algorithms and we find that, like, you know, this is a little bit reductive, but basically, theoretically, um, you know, if, if you're trying to reconcile, sorry, impact disparity, like if you want to achieve demographic parity subject to uh, maximizing, if you want to maximize accuracy subject to achieving uh, demographic parity, you know, basically not having impact disparity, then treatment disparity is optimal. Like it is at least like in the large data limit. It, it is the optimal thing to do. Basically, the, it, it's real simple. If you believe the probabilities that you have, the optimal thing to do is explicitly just set different thresholds for different groups. You say, the problem with this system is we're not accepting enough people from this group and we're accepting too many people from that group. Explicitly move the needle. That, that is, a, that is the, actually like the optimal way to trade off the, the, the disparity. And it's not just for um, demographic parity for a number of these. It's just, and there were a few papers, ours was one of them at the same time, that basically just showed that this is sort of a contrived problem. If you just take one, any one of these things against accuracy, the, the way to optimize it is just threshold setting. Now, because it's the optimal thing to do, if your other covariates basically reveal the demographic membership, so it's like you could deduce it, or, or a model in your class is powerful enough to deduce it perfectly with no noise, implicitly, then basically like, all you've done is you've got out functionally the same exact model, but now you've taken it from one that explicitly depends on the demographic to one that outputs the same, the exact same predictions for everyone, but just sort of pretends not to depend on the demographic. So then the interesting case is what happens when basically you can only noisily infer someone's group membership from their other covariates. And I'm going to show you what happens. And it's, it's, it's a bit frightening. And I think it, it kind of shows how if, if we don't think about even a toy example of, of what's going on here, we can really uh, confuse ourselves, is that basically if you apply one of these algorithms, one of the side effects that you get is you end up like reordering with even within a group. So say it's like men and women in our both our synthetic and our real data example, is if you apply one of these algorithms, you don't just change um, you know, who gets um, 
you know, that you don't just move the needle for, you know, say, okay, we're going to accept less men and accept more women because we care about diversity. What you're actually going to do is you're going to end up rejecting some women who would otherwise be accepted, accepting some women who would otherwise be rejected. You're going to change the, your sort of like orderings within the groups in weird ways. And also, one of the things that comes out of here is before you knew, you at least knew what you were estimating. You said, I was estimating a conditional probability, assuming that like my historical data is like actually some stable distribution. Now, once you start applying one of these algorithms, you have no idea what you're estimating because you're estimating some kind of likelihood objective that is set against a whole bunch of constraints that you don't really understand. Um, and if you, and, and this entire process is being done without any consideration of what actually are the decisions that you're making and how do they interact with the social system that you're putting out there. And one result here is that basically you can create all kinds of bizarre incentives because you're not thinking about incentives at all in the first place that are just truly like, you know, frightening. So here, here's a toy example is that we could say, um, so in this toy example is something like uh, that Alex concocted, um, and then we'll get to a real example, but just to kind of show qualitatively what's going on. You could say that imagine you have a situation where like, the only thing that's sort of causally relevant for someone's work performance is their work experience. And for historical reasons, maybe uh, men have had, you know, have had like say access to a certain career um, for a longer period of time than women had. So there's more men with more experience. So in this case, we have men are, are the blue dots and blue triangles. Women are the, um, uh, I guess that's orange dots and uh, orange triangles. And so basically, like, there's more men over on the right side, more women over on the left side. And then you have, uh, you know, you're doing a normal ML thing, which is you've got a bunch of covariates that don't really matter, but happen to be correlated with your other features. So imagine you have hair length. Now, I don't think someone's actually going to explicitly put hair length as a covariate here, but the point is just as a didactic example. You know, imagine you have hair length. So now, you know, if you basically set some kind of cutoff for who you hire based on work experience, you're going to hire many more men and you're going to hire many fewer women. Now, if you say, hey, we don't want to do that, um, we recognize that, hey, we uh, are, are in some kind of point in history where, where we have some, we, you know, think that we have some, you know, uh, imperative to, to intervene in the process and do things in a, in a better way. The sort of natural stupid thing we could do is just say, okay, we're going we're gonna to accept less men and we're going to accept more women. And we're going to um, sort of apply some pressure in this process that is going to, you know, lead to a future in which, you know, there, there are, there's more parity among the amount of work experience that people have had. The other thing you could do is you could say, well, I'm going to apply one of these algorithms off the shelf that's basically going to be whether or not that's what we thought it was going to do in our head is going to be implicitly trying to reconstruct what their gender is without having access to the gender information using what other, um, other covariates are available. And in fact, it had to be. Like the only reason, the only way the algorithm could possibly work is, is if these other features were correlated with gender without any regard to any consideration, say, of like procedural fairness. Like, are these, or any consideration of the incentive structure. So any, without any consideration of like, are these features that are relevant in any way? So imagine, you know, we have hair length involved. We apply, um, this is actually applying the algorithm, this is synthetic data, but actually applying one of these algorithms off the shelf. What you get is, rather than just setting different thresholds for men and women, what you do is you actually, you get this new decision boundary, which is the dotted blue line that says we're gonna, and indeed it, you know, rejects more men and accepts more women. So the downward triangles are the ones that are, um, people had their decision flipped from positive to negative because you applied this algorithm. Um, the up triangles, people had their decisions flipped from negative to positive. But you notice you have some women who have short hair. So basically the model is implicitly trying to use hair length as a surrogate for gender. So some women with short hair have their decisions flipped from positive to negative. Some men with long hair actually benefit from the policy, which is actually meant to be benefiting women because they happen to have long hair. Um, and you can also step back and think, well, what actually is, what happens the very next day when you deploy the policy is that everybody goes out and uh, starts growing their hair long. So it basically says, hey, uh, you can be, uh, we're, we're, we're going to help women, but only those women that sort of conform to stereotype in the sense that it's easy to predict, for whom it's easiest to, to infer um, their own based on the, vari you know, the variables available in our data set. Um, so here's, here's, here's a slightly more frightening example with real data. Um, real data and synthetic discrimination 
is that we have a data set of 9,000 students who are considered for admission to a master's program of a large United States university over an 11 year period. We have labels, which are admissions decisions, which are basically what did the faculty admissions committee say in the previous year, positive or negative. Um, we have attributes that include gender as our protected attribute, but also things like country of origin, interest area, GRE, and a bunch of other features. And then we apply synthetic discrimination. We just take a bunch of women whose decisions are positive in the data set, and we flip their decisions to negative just to say, in case, you know, you know, we believe the people at this university are well-intentioned at the real data. We, we don't know if there's discrimination in, in the real data, but we know there's discrimination in our slightly, you know, semi-synthetic data because we put it there. Um, so now we could say, same thing, only what we're gonna do now to make this really clear is what we could do is we, could, we can make a plot here, and what this plot is gonna show is we've got two axes, and um, the uh, x-axis, basically we, we've trained the model to just, instead of trying to predict, uh, so the natural thing is just predict whether or not the committee would have admitted this person and set a threshold based on that. And that is this black line here, right? That is sort of like the naive machine learning approach. What we do here instead is if we train a model and try to predict is someone um, use the model to just, just predict their gender based on their non-protected attributes. And you see, you know, there's sort of a spread here, right? Some people have things are very unlikely to be female. Some people have things are very likely to be female. And then we also train the mo model to predict the probability um, that they're going to get admitted. And what we can visualize is basically if we apply the, the DLP on this data, we can say who gets their decisions flipped. So this plot over here is the same plot, it's just a zoom on the critical region. And what we see is that the people who have their decisions flipped from negative to positive are people who are thought by the model based on their non-protected features to be more likely to be female and are just a little bit below the threshold. The people who get their decisions flipped from positive to negative are people who are, the model or thinks are more likely to be male and are just a little bit above the threshold before you apply the algorithm. Um, but notice a couple things, one, is that you know, there's a number of uh, females who have their decisions flipped from positive to negative. There's a number of males who have their decisions flipped from negative to positive. Um, these are individuals who should have been helped by uh, the intervention that are hurt or people that um, should not have benefited from the intervention that do. And then here's where things get sticky, is that what do you think among the features that we had were the things that were predictive of gender? In our case, one of the things that was most predictive was which, what was your interest area, your stated interest area. So there's the big gender disparities over who wants to join which area. So what does this mean? Now it means that we're gonna, we're gonna intervene in the process and what we're gonna do is we're going to take the areas that have the biggest gender imbalance, the areas that most want for diversity, and we're gonna actually sort of like, we're gonna hurt people who are applying into those areas, the areas that actually need the intervention. Um, and then we're gonna take areas that actually have uh, all have a, have, have a solid balance now and say that's, that's, where, the, that's where actually um, people are gonna benefit because you think because they wanna work in that area that they're more likely to be female. So um, the big danger here is that you could wind up with a policy that actually, uh, you know, because we've sort of lost resolution and thought in this kind of clumsy way about the problem and we never thought about what is relevant, we never thought about even is this is this actually what the law mandates or can we just intervene directly and do something coherent? We wind up creating, uh, and we, because we never accounted for incentives, um, we wind up creating this really incoherent system that, that has the potential to cause more harm than good. And I think this has happened many different times in different ways and people have even constructed very toy models and just tried to zoom out of a simple kind of economicsy type model and say, um, so I think there, there's, there's a nice paper from, um, um, there's a number of these, I think Lily Hu's done some very interesting work in this area. I think uh, Moritz Hart student uh, Lydia Leo had a, a best paper award where there's a number of these papers where they just, they basically step just a little bit back from the classification formulation and say what actually is the impact that we have on the social system if you uh, make, you know, what sort of the, the myopic statistical view, you know, the static view of, of fair ML says is the right thing to do. You do that, you wind up like in the next iteration you know, if you actually just account for even the, the slightest bit of a feedback loop, uh, you can wind up with cases that the, the intervention that you think is sort of like, sort of parity promoting could actually be disadvantageous to the group, you know, harmful to the group that you're trying to protect. Um, 
And so I'll, I, you know, as, as predicted and hoped for, I don't have to talk about um, interpretability today. Um, what I'll end with is that, um, and this is a paper um, uh, with my postdoc, um, who's in, who's sort of jointly, I guess, uh, with a, working with a professor in philosophy and with me, Sina Fazalpur, you know, made this really wonderful connection. Um, and it came from just reading just uh, the literature on um, sort of ideal and non-ideal approaches to sort of theorizing um, about these uh, questions of, of justice that, that has a, a long history in political philosophy. In this case, this is a, a book called The Imperative of Integration, which is specifically, right, this is not the first time we've thought about group level disparities. Um, uh, in the United States, there, there's a long literature of people wrestling with what is the right thing to do in the wake of sort of America's sort of racist legacy and what are the right policies. And, and, and uh, this book is a book basically advocating sort of aggressive um, integration promoting um, policies. And it's, it's nice because, I mean, among other things, you, you really get to see over the course of a few hundred pages what sort of doing the work looks like, what it actually takes to make a, a clear uh, argument about what is the justice promoting. And, I'm, and it doesn't mean that everyone's gonna read the book and agree with every single claim or every single, but you see what an earnest attempt looks like. And I think there's a lot of these. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been kind of enlightening to spend you know, a good chunk of maybe the last year reading some of the literature in this area. Uh, I think so some other books that were nice. Ruha Benjamin's book, I think, gives you, uh, I think, a, um, Again, a much broader view. There's a book called Racecraft that I think um, makes you step back and even think, are we doing something fundamentally wrong by participating in, in a system of classification that, that sort of um, you know, reinforces like race as even a, a valid distinction and, and what are the ways that we can sort of combat these past harms without participating in that. Um, but you know, she talks about it and says, you know, what are the ingredients to actually, and, and this is at a time when we were like sitting here trying to articulate what was wrong with like this sort of entire way of conceiving of things as just a classification problem. What actually, and, and you know, this is basically this problem, like we don't have the right ingredients. What are the right ingredients? And Sina start, started reading way more broadly and made this connection that basically like, you, there was a number of paragraphs here were almost exactly like what we were, probably better stated than we would have put it, but that capture, you know, qualitatively what we were going for, which is like, you know, what, what do we need? First of all, we need a causal explanation of the problem that we're dealing with in the first place. There's no way to say what is fair without any description of like actually what is the data that you have? What is the societal process that gave rise to it? Like there's no getting around it. Like a lot of people say, okay, but I've got a deployed system and I got to do something. You can't wish away like impossibility. It's like you can't wish away insufficiency. Um, and, and, and one thing that I would just kind of inject here is that one thing that, one, I think one reason, one thing that's sort of missing in that whole conversation is like what's off the table is people aren't considering that maybe if you haven't done the work, you shouldn't automate a decision. And that, you know, there, there's I think an important conversation that needs to be had about what decisions should not ever, at least not now with what we know how to, you know, sh should not be automated. And I think, you know, a lot of decisions in criminal justice fall into this category that uh, you know, we should be thinking really seriously about whether whether this technology is mature to, to play any role in it um, at present. Um, so, right, we need a causal explanation of the problem, determining what can and ought to be done about it. And second, we need to know who should be charged with correcting it. So there's a question of what are the relevant decisions and actually who are the actors and which decisions that have a responsibility for doing what? And then third thing is that, you know, this is a, um, a sort of fact-sensitive enterprise that we ultimately, um, um, and this is you know sort of a, a difference between the ideal and the non-ideal approach. The ideal approach, which I kind of glossed over, is you know we sort of imagine a, a, a completely perfectly just world, and we, we we sort of focus on some kind of discrepancy, some way that our world is different from that, or some way that people make decisions is different from how you would think they would in, in the ideal world, and just say, okay, well, let's let's be more like the ideal world, and. and um, uh, so I think one thing that maybe the ML literature has, which I'll get to, is, is sort of that, that, that may just, fun, you know, one thing that's nice about the impossibility theorems is it's sort of a way of, I think, going back to the philosophical problem and saying a big problem in the ideal approach is that this might not actually be possible because there's a question of it might not be possible to minimize all discrepancies and, and the, the relevant consideration is which one and not how to optimize it. How to optimize it is usually actually a trivial math problem and that, the real problem is what should we be optimizing? But you know, 
like the 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 the, the classic case, the textbook case of like mis of or, you know, this case maybe we could disagree, but a uh, classic case of like the ideal approach, um, potentially, um, I guess I would argue maybe being misguided, is that people would say the that what we should do is have a system where we never in any way take like take into account you have all only colorblind policies, only race blind policies, and the re the, the, the the rationale from the ideal approach is sort of to say the reason why you should do it is because the perfect world, everyone would be race blind. And the argument that Anderson makes is that what it doesn't tell us is that it doesn't tell us what, you know, given that we don't live in an ideal world and that we don't have a history of everyone being perfect and we don't have perfect compliance, it's like what is the thing, um, what is the right thing for, what is the justice promoting thing to do given that you live in this world that is not ideal, that does not have perfect compliance? Um, and I think this, this, this lens is, is really important, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that Sina is better read than I am and, and made this connection. I think this literature articulated it much better than we're doing right now in, in this, and I, I don't think these issues are actually have anything to do with machine learning. It's just that like, they're, they're timely because of machine learning, but they've been, I think, dis discussed, and I think way more than people in the ML community give philosophers credit for. Um, but the second thing, the last part is that it's fact sensitive, that ultimately like a policy is a hypothesis. You have a policy that you believe will be just promoting or will bring you closer. Like the ideal serves as like maybe um, a goal, but ultimately you come up with some proposed policy and the ideal just forms sort of like an evaluative standard. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to have some understanding of the mechanisms, not just those that cause the problem, but also the mechanisms by which your proposed policy interacts with the world and either exacerbates the problem or makes it better. Um, so the, what I'll end with is just, you know, yeah. I, I think this connection is really important. I think this is literature that, I think if the only contribution of the paper is just to maybe expose people in ML to this literature, that is quite relevant. Um, so, I mean, I guess I just put a blob of text because and now that this is, this is a second I always hated in philosophy talks, they have blobs of text, but I just wanted to incorporate this material from the paper and remember what I wanted to talk about. You don't have to read it, but that's always what happens. You know, is, I, I think to sum up, you know, like sort of the conclusions here is sort of like, you know, there, there's a danger right now that like what we're doing in this community is, you know, and I stated this before, is just basically that we are, we're, we're sort of giving the appearance of like an academic certificate of fairness that like inoculates people against regulation or or or, or even that that sort of takes the someone that someone at the Simon Institute someone from a legal scholar put this really really well at, at Cynthia and, and Patricia Williams uh, when they, at this workshop that they organized said like like sort of what we end up what we risk doing by virtue of this enterprise is taking like the judge out of judgment is that we we pretend that we have a technical solution for it but the the, the biggest danger is that we take out human judgment from the process altogether. We convince policymakers that there exists a technical solution that we don't actually need someone to like do the work, so to speak. Um, I think also that this gives us a real clear lens on, on these impossibility theorems. And that I think you know, they become really trivial, I think, when viewed from the ideal and non-ideal lens, which is just that all that the impossibility theorems tell us is you don't live in the ideal world. It's just a frank like certification just saying, hey, it's just a confirmation you don't live in the ideal world. There, and, and, and you are just one agent in it. There's nothing you can do that will make, even by virtue of the, the, the limited view of data that you interact with, that will make everything identical in every way. And, and, that's, that's, and, and the takeaway is not this misguided takeaway of like, well, fairness is impossible, or let's just pick one out of the hat and focus on that. The takeaway is that the important consideration is actually what should you be doing, not how do I optimize it. And then Cena, again, being better read than me, um, did I mention he's on the job market, um, identifies other source that just absolutely, I should have hid the footnote here, that blew me away, that this, this is from a book called Equity in 1994, that, you know, basically, if everyone in 2016 read, you know, it says exactly what's wrong here, right? Um, with basically just enumerating axi axioms of sort of equity, um, to sort of, you know, basically from simple and intuitively plausible propositions about the meaning of equity, one draws general and sometimes surprising conclusions um, about the form that an equitable rule must take. The axiomatic method has two weaknesses, however. The first is that while each axiom seems reasonable by itself, 
when piled on top of one another, they almost inevitably lead to impossibility theorems. This confirms a skeptic's predisposition to believe that the problem had no solution anyway. The proper conclusion, however, is, not, um, is that not all desirable conditions can be satisfied simultaneously. Some choice must be made. Um, and I think maybe this is even more important. A second difficulty with the axiomatic method is that it can easily become disengaged from the problem that it was intended to solve. The invention of axioms and conditions is a fascinating business. The danger is that the exercise can take on a life of its own and lead to results that are mathematically elegant, but they have little or no relation to the realities of the underlying situation. And I think that's kind of the, the place that we've just sort of cycled back to um, 25 years, 26 years later. So anyway, um, I'll end there. Um, you know, I, the, 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 the work on disparate learning processes, I think, um, you know, just as much credit goes to Alex Toldachova and Julian McCauley, my, my collaborators, and, and this connection um, to uh, the relevant work in political philosophy, I think um, the lion's share of the credit goes to my postdoc, uh, Sina Fazal-Poor. <laughs> <laughs>